All right, well, good morning again. Welcome. Uh, those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian, uh, lead pastor here at Hope Lower Town, and I'm excited to be able to jump back into Romans with you all. This is week 16, believe it or not, that we've been going through Romans. We're in chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through through 20 this morning. And uh, I'm, I'm, it, this is an interesting way to go through this book, all right? When you, when you read it through, which would have been how they would have uh, initially would have been, would have read this letter, that the Apostle Paul would have sent his letter to the churches in Rome, these small house churches, uh, and, and they would have, these people would have got copies of this letter, or they would have had one letter that would have been passed around to these churches, and they would have, someone would have, you know, an elder at the church would have, would have read these, these words, read, read the whole thing, one through 16 in, in, a, in, a, in a setting, right? And, and that's what would have happened. And, and yet we're kind of taking our time. We wanna be able to look at, uh, really deeply at these words that have a lot of meaning, each individual word. And we'll say, okay, what is, what is God revealing uh, to us? Again, this, this letter isn't written to us, it's written for us though, right? Thousands of years ago, two churches in first century Rome. And here we are now looking at the same letter that they would have been looking at and so uh, we're going to be jumping in. Before I, I get in here, I want to, uh, the title of the sermon um, is called The Obituary of, of Self-Justification. And so I was thinking about obituaries, you know, it was a weird, weird thing to think about. Um, but I was reminded of, there, you know, there's been a couple, if you've, if you've read obituaries of, of people, usually they're very, this person was a great person, a great father, a great mother, or whatever, fill in the blank. And they did this good thing for their neighborhood or their community, or there's always just something kind of generalized. And one of the most infamous stories, if you're familiar, is by a gentleman by the name of Alfred Nobel. And he, does anyone know what Alfred Nobel is infamous for? Dynamite. Okay, so this is, this is crazy. So he was, he was French, and so this has been translated into American uh, for us. And so um, this was a French newspaper, and, and I guess they, it wasn't just for Alfred Nobel, it was for a, a lot of people that they printed I guess maybe people would write obituaries early. I don't really know, but they printed a bunch of obituaries for people who hadn't died. And so Alfred Nobel reads his own obituary and it says, Dr. Alfred Nobel, who made a fortune by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before died yesterday. And it continues to go on. And he, is, he was the inventor of dynamite. Uh, and he said, wow, I do not want that to be my obituary. And so he then actually died and to his family's dismay, he dedicated a lot of, or most of his money that he had earned off of his inventions um, to founding the Nobel Peace Prize. And so he would give a Nobel Peace, right? After he died, he founded this organization that would give uh, people who were instrumental in providing peace, right? And so, so now when we hear the Nobel, we think, yeah, Nobel Peace Prize, not dynamite. Right, um, and so that that got me thinking about that. Well, on our Monday morning um, call, when we talk about our text for the week, uh, Paul uh, Stiver, one of our elders here, he had just said he's like, "This is this this text sounds like an obituary for self justification," and uh, it got me thinking. And I was and I started to write one up, and I was like, "You know who can do this better than me? AI." Uh, and so I, I just went to GPT chat and I said, write me an obituary for self-justification. So I'm just going to read that um, just to get the, the wheels turning on this. I, I think it did a really good job. Uh, it says this, it is with heavy hearts that we announce the passing <laughs> of self-justification. 
the personification of the tendency to rationalize and defend one's own actions and decisions who passed away on April 29th, 2023. Self-justification was a prominent figure in human nature, influencing countless individuals throughout history. Born in the depths of the human psyche, self-justification quickly grew to become a powerful force in shaping behaviors and beliefs. Its influence could be seen in all aspects of life, from personal relationships to global politics. Self-justification was known for its ability to, con to convince individuals that their actions were justifiable, even in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. It often led to the perpetuation uh, of harmful behaviors and attitudes, making it a divisive and controversial figure. Despite its flaws, self like they try to spin a positive here, right? Despite its flaws, self-justification played an important role in human development. It pushed individuals to defend their beliefs and take actions, sometimes leading to positive change. However, its unchecked power often led to stubbornness and resistance to change. Self-justification's passing is a reminder of the importance of self-reflection and critical thinking. Its legacy will be felt for years to come as individuals continue to grapple with the tension between the desire to justify their actions and the need to acknowledge their flaws. Self-justification will be missed, but its passing offers an opportunity for growth and self-improvement. May its memory serve as a reminder to approach our actions and beliefs with honesty and humility rather than blind justification. <laughs> I thought it was pretty impressive uh, for AI. Anyways, this week's sermon, Obituary of Self-Justification, it is so incredibly explicitly clear from the Apostle Paul here. And, and again, I'm not going to take the time to go back and, and reread it, but, but two weeks ago, or the, the first chapter, first one and a half chapters of looking at, okay, here's the Gentiles, here, here are all the other nations, and here's why they're all bad, and they're all sinful. And then he shifts it, okay, how about you Jews who might be reading this saying, yeah, yeah, those bad guys, those Gentiles, all the other people who don't worship God the way I worship God, he goes, whoa, 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 you are also guilty. Right? So now he's saying, in case you didn't understand what I was saying about everybody, both Jews and Gentiles, now let me make it explicitly clear. I'm going to read Romans 9, 3 through 20, and I would ask if you're able just to stand with me as I read the whole text for this morning, and then we will dig into the text kind of line by line this morning. Romans chapter 3, 9 through 20 says this, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their, lisp, their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Thank you. You may be seated. 
you can understand why I titled it this way, the end, the death, the obituary of self-justification, because Paul is saying, I don't care who you think you are. I don't care how good you think you are. You're not good enough. And you will never be good enough. This is, we, we all fall short. There is no justification. We cannot be made right in God's eyes. Again, which leads into this question that I've been asking, at least trying to answer Paul's main overarching question for the entire book is how can a just God allow anyone into heaven? If God is holy, if he's unapproachable by sin and any, therefore any human being, how is it that any human could ever be made right, could ever be justified, could ever actually have righteousness to be able to be in the throne room of God? How is it even possible? And what Paul is saying right here up until this point is it can't, it cannot happen. So he's gonna start off and let me get into this text as we walk through it. He's gonna say, not even God's chosen people, right? He, he chose the Jews, he chose the Hebrews, he chose the Israelites. Are they, they're not, they're not okay? They're not okay? I, I don't understand. I, I thought that, that everything was, was good. And so um, looking at this first introduction, or at least verse nine here, what then are the Jews any better off, right? Why, why ask this question? And if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, specifically last week, Paul preached last week and asked this question, looking at this text, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Or what is the value of obeying the law externally? And then verse two, much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And he's saying, the Jews got to see God and, and, and learn from God and hear from God and read his written word. They got a lot of advantages. But then our text then goes and it says, what then, are the Jews any better off? They got a lot of advantages. Here they are. No. <laughs> are they any better off? No. No. We have already charged that both, they're that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written, and then it will continue there in that text. Again, how can a just God allow any, any sin, any human being into his presence? And so up till now, the apostle Paul has been building his case that everyone has sinned. And so therefore, no one, I don't care who you are, how good you are, who your daddy was, it doesn't matter. Everybody, nobody can be in a holy God's presence. So Paul here is saying, in case you missed it, let me make this emphatically, explicitly clear as I can. And not, not even just using my words, I'm gonna use your people's words. I'm gonna use the Israelites' words. I'm gonna use the Old Testament here to prove to you we're all doomed. That's his goal here, this obituary. Self-justification. Well, if I just do good enough, if I just am good enough, then what, what will happen? But before we jump into the details of this obituary, we need to look at the definition of what's called total depravity. It's like, well, that's a weird thing, but I'm gonna set the mood with total depravity this morning, all right? I think we need to understand that, right? So, so it's kind of like um, uh, Ariel from uh, The Little Mermaid, right? What's the, what's the seagull's name? They're setting the mood. The seagull. Oh, come on. Oh, he's got a name. Anyways, the seagull, right? Kiss the girl. The song, Kiss the Girl. He's setting the mood, right? He want Ariel and Eric to fall in love. We're setting the mood with total depravity. Very different. Very different feel. What is total depravity? Here's what it is not, which helps. 
It is not utter depravity. Utter depravity means everybody everywhere is as bad as they possibly could be. That's utter depravity. That's not, that's not total depravity. Total depravity, and I'll read a, uh, a definition here from uh, R.C. Sproul. Total depravity means simply this, that sin affects every, every aspect of our human existence. Our minds, our wills, and our bodies are affected by sin. Every dimension of our personality suffers at some point from the weight of sin that has infected the human race. So going all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, that once humanity has been infected with the sin that they commit against God, that every human that's ever been born has this idea of total depravity. The phrase total depravity is not in the Bible. Okay, that's just a way that theologians in years past, mainly in the Reformation in the 1500s, used this phrase total depravity to represent this idea, that our minds, our wills, and our bodies have been affected by sin. If you have a pulse, you know that your body has been affected by sin. You know that. You know that our bodies are, are breaking down. They're, they're, they're falling apart as you get older, right? I think, what is the actual number? It's like 28. Like once you hit 28, then you're actually dying. You know what I mean? Like your, your body stops making cells or something. No, that's not true. It does something. Something happens at 28 where you die. Like you're dying. That's all I know. Right? And as you get further and further from 28, you know that's true right? It just, it immediately starts happening. And yet it's also true of our minds, which again, I think we, I think we can understand that, but our wills as well, that even when I decide to do something, there's something in the language that we use at hope is that it's tainted by sin, right? That there's some kind of, there's something about everything, even when I do something good, right? I, I love to preach the gospel. I love to preach the good news of Jesus. And yet there's a part of me that says, man, I kind of hope I impress you guys. Right? There's a part of him that says, I really hope they like me. I hope that I get an email at the end going, wow, man, that was amazing. I want that. That's total depravity, right? So the issue and what we need to understand with total depravity, especially when we look at other people and when we look at ourselves, is that we are not free moral agents making bad decisions. And we need to know that about other people. And we need to see them that way. Why? Because do we see people as able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps? Right? Do we see somebody who makes a really bad decision and then go, you idiot. Right? You, why, why would you do that? I didn't do that. I'm clearly more superior than you are. That's not total depravity. That's you're depraved, I'm not. They can do better, or do we see them as people ruled by self-righteousness? There's a phrase that I've used many times, Varsity Sproul talking about free will in conjunction with total depravity, and is that, is, that is every choice I make is free, every, church, every choice I make is determined. Right, that sounds like an oxymoron, but it's not. What is being determined? The choices I make are determined, not determinism, not meaning that I don't have a say, Right? I do have a, a, a choice that I can make at any given moment. And it's usually my strongest, or always, my strongest inclination at any given moment. And when I am totally depraved, my strongest inclination at any given moment will never be good. Will never be good on my own. I need somebody then to speak into my life because that, de that, that determined, every choice I make is free. Every choice I make is determined. What is determining it? My self-righteousness, my self. It's self-determinism. Self-determined, not determinism, excuse me. 
It's self-determined. And I'm in the dark. I'm not gonna make good decisions. And if myself is totally depraved, I need somebody, AKA Jesus, to show me the light, the good news, or else I'm always gonna be making decisions for me. I need Jesus. I'm gonna continue going through this uh, passage here. It says, it says that we are under sin. We see that all, both Jews and Greeks, every human being who's ever existed and whoever will exist are under sin. That word just kind of caught my, my eye this week of like, what, what does it mean to be under sin? And I was thinking about like, when, when would we ever be on top of, of something? And then it's a pretty common phrase that we use. Uh, that if you get an email from someone that says, and I've never, I don't know if I've ever used this phrase, maybe I have, um, but someone says, hey, Brian, can you get this thing done? Yeah, I'm on top of it, right? Like, I, yeah, I, I'm actually, I'm on top of it. I'm in control of it. I will get it, I will get it done. I, I, um, I tried to use AI uh, art generator to like show someone on, on top of a burden that was crushing somebody else. And AI was like, that's too violent. We can't, I won't do that. So I was like, okay, I don't, all right, whatever, I tried. Um, but then it got me thinking of this though. I've been reading this book, The Little Pilgrim's Progress. Um, Pilgrim's Progress is this um, individual who, Christian is his name, who at the start of the book, he is uh, being crushed by this weight, this burden, right? He's under sin. Um, this Little Pilgrim's Progress makes little, little uh, bunny rabbit Christian look like he's just got a day backpack on, um, uh, right? John Bunyan in the story, it, it's a crushing weight. It's, it's dragging him down. And that's what it means to be under sin, that we're just always aware of the weight of the sin. Then he says this, no, not one. As it is written, again, let me use your language. Let me use what the Bible says, what the Old Testament, what Yahweh has taught you through the Psalms and the Proverbs and through Isaiah, the prophets. Let me use your language. And he's gonna say here, how can a God, how can a just God allow anyone into heaven? And Paul is gonna say here, he can't, he can't. That's the argument Paul is making. No one is righteous. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. And again, we'll get into this next phrase of no one seeks for God. And so we can, we can flip that. We can say, because no one seeks after God, because we're not capable of seeking after God. Why? Because we're totally depraved. We're in the darkness that we need someone to bring us out. Because no one seeks after God, therefore no one understands God. And if no one understands God, it is impossible to be righteous before God. I need God to do these things in my life. So I kind of hinted at this, no one seeks God. And I put a question mark on that because, because it's like, really? No one seeks God? I, I feel like even in my own story, even as a young kid, I sought after God and I found him, right? What about all of the other world religions out there of people seeking for God and doing things to look for God? And then it dawned on me, wow, the obituary of self-justification. Because I immediately was like, I found him, <laughs> right? It was immediately like, well, Christians sure found him. It's like, what? 
you check your, your privilege at the door here, right? That's the, the, the issue here, it doesn't say the Christians seek after God and nobody else does. It says no one <laughs> seeks for God. No one, not, not only Christians. So what about everyone else who seems to seek after God, even Christians? I'm gonna go to the old dead guy, Thomas Aquinas. He, uh, he once said this on, on this aspect. When we see people searching for such things as truth, peace of mind, eternal life, or happiness. They're searching from relief for their guilt. Trying to solve this, right? And you look at the, the life in the, of, of Martin Luther, for example, that he was in all human respects seeking for God, seeking to be made righteous, that he would go to confession for hours and hours at a time where his priest started to like hate Martin Luther because this guy won't leave me alone. I like, I need to go eat. I need to go take a break and I can't because this guy is just confessing every day for hours. Well, it seems like he's seeking God and yet, right? Searching for such things such as truth, peace of mind, eternal life or happiness. They are searching for relief from their guilt. These are things that Christians know only God can give them. So we leap to the conclusion that since they are searching diligently for those things, which only God can give them, they must therefore be searching for God. And, and again, according to what Romans is teaching with policy, this is, this is including Christians before Christ, if that makes sense. People who are maybe in the church, but haven't truly been redeemed in their souls by the renewing blood of Christ. But it is precisely this in which man's sinfulness consists, that man seeks for the benefits of God while fleeing from the person of God. I think to me that that, that hit me a little harder this week when I was reading that, and that what what blessings do I want from God without having to deal with God himself? Well, God, just give me protection. I just, I just need you to do this for me. I feel like maybe I've earned it or I feel like you owe me, whatever it may be. I want this blessing, but man, don't, don't require anything of me. I want the blessing. I don't want necessarily you. And so the big question in the bay or the begs, begs the question, well, doesn't then God play hide and seek? Does God play hide and seek with people? If someone is really like, no, I wanna find God. I wanna know who God is. Is that who God is? Does he just hide from them? This one, I was able to find an AI image. I typed the prompt, God playing hide and seek with a family. I don't know why I said family. Um, but this was the um, image that came back, which I have no idea why. A very old man, I'm presuming that's God, with a weird family with a dog and a cat. No clue. Uh, no idea. But it, it made me laugh uh, because if God and whoever is that old man represents God, he plays hide and seek like my two-year-old. Right? Have you ever played hide and seek with a little kid? Hey, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go hide right? Or you go hide and I'm going to come find you, right? And it's like, hey, and right, as soon as I say, hey, ready or not, here I come. And it's like, I'm here. I'm over here. That's how God plays hide and seek. He doesn't play hide and seek. He's always like, I'm right here. Matter of fact, let me, let me come find you. And so the story of redemption is God seeks us when we try to hide from him. He is the one that makes the first move. We go all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve first 
sin and they cover themselves with leaves to hide their guilt and their shame and they go and they hide. They hide from God and God comes walking up and he says, Adam, where are you? He comes looking for them. Humans are the ones that hide in the whole entire book from Genesis to Revelation. And it ends with, in Revelation 21 and 22, that he will be their God and he will dwell with them and they will be their people. He will dwell with us. The whole end and the culmination of humanity is that God is going to come back and return and be with us. He seeks after us. We don't seek after him. And if we do seek after him, it's because God has inclined our heart to seek after him and he will show himself faithful. He's gonna continue with this indictment against all of humanity. The, indictment, the indictments against all of humanity doesn't stop. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless like no value, a waste of space, worthless. No one does good, not even one. I was thinking about this and again, no one does good. I feel like I know a lot of people, a lot of people who are non-Christian who do good. Like I feel like I know a lot of those people. They're good people. Here's what R.C. Sproul again says about this. When God examines an action, he considers it both in terms of its external action and its internal motive. The Apostle Paul, and pause the the quote here. The Apostle Paul just got done saying that just being Jew, a Jewish, just being a Jew or Jewish doesn't make one Jewish. Just because I am a descendant of Abraham doesn't make me Jewish, just because I am outwardly physically circumcised doesn't mean I'm good. I'm part of this community. It's a circumcision of the heart. It's my heart posture towards God that makes one. And so, so Sproul here is saying, yes, there's an external action, but there's an internal motive. For example, the law requires that we don't steal. If I refrain from stealing, I have done half the good deed, the external part. But the Bible teaches that a truly good deed is motivated by a heart that seeks to honor God, by a heart that is loving God. That's the internal dimension of the good deed. Though my outward acts may in fact conform to the external demands of the law, if they do not spring from a heart that loves God, they are motivated by selfish desire. It is in that high sense of goodness that nobody outside of Christ ever does a good deed. By good, again, doesn't mean that that good things don't happen because of their good deed or their good works. It means that in God's eyes, if that person thinks that they're gonna be justified by that good deed, it is no good deed. It, It can't be done. Everybody, everywhere. Says that we are all worthless. We are worse than worthless idols. I I put that in there because Psalm 135 uses this language of of idols, actual uh, statues, these idols. It says they have eyes, they can't see. They have ears, they can't hear. They have mouths, but they can't speak. And those who make them are like them. They're just worthless. But the apostle Paul here is saying that we're, we're worse than that because we don't just have a throat that doesn't speak. Our throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. 
The venom of asps, snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Getting into uh, some, some proverbs here. They're just so quick to just cause pain and suffering. In their paths are ruin and misery. How many people can I step on to make it right for me? To get what I want? The way of peace they have not known. That's an interesting phrase, especially for the Jewish readers. That community, when you would say hello to someone, you would say shalom, which means peace. When you would leave a house and you'd say, hey, good night, you'd say shalom, which means peace. Their way of greeting one another, comings and goings was peace. And he's saying the way of peace, nobody has known. There's no fear of God before their eyes, right? This isn't necessarily a trembling fear. This is a respectful fear. This is, this is a, one that acknowledges God's authority in their eyes. So is there any hope? I mean, what's going on here? What's with this text? Continuing on, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Don't have time to go back, but in one and two, Chapters one and two talk about how every human being is under the law, the law that's written on their hearts, their conscience. That even if I have a conscience, that I still am guilty to what I think is right or wrong. Even on my own art, I still can't obey my own little L law of what I think is good and written on my heart. And then also is included in this are those under the big L law of God, the law of Moses, that anyone under the law, those who are Jews or Greeks, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. There's nothing wrong with law, but there's a knowledge of law that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That a lot of times, right? I, I didn't even know, I, well, I didn't even know I was doing something wrong. Well, is it, is it wrong to speed in this neighborhood, in this community? Well, there's a posted sign limit. Oh, now I know I am breaking the law. That's what happens. And the knowledge of the law or law usually just makes us want to break the law. It happened just this last week. I was about to say something to, to Jack, my four-year-old. He was doing something wrong or was about to do something wrong. Uh, and, and I was about to say a law, right? I was about to say, don't do whatever. And I stopped myself because I said, if I say that, he's going to do it. If I don't say it, he probably won't do it, <laughs> right? And so I didn't even make him aware of the law or the danger that he was about to impose on himself. That's what the law does. The law has the ability to bring inward conviction, guilt, and shame. Its power is linked to show everyone that their own righteousness will only lead to condemnation. But the law is a forerunner, if you will, to Jesus Christ who prepares our hearts for the good news. The law just says, I fall short. The law tells me whether it's of my own conscience or of what God has written, I go, I can't do it. I can't. And so it's a forerunner of Christ in that God gives us the good news and says, yeah, but he did. He did. He loved all of his neighbors as himself. He loved his enemies. I can't do that. I need Christ. 
Paul here is talking about people who think they will stand before the judge of the earth someday and think that they're okay because of their good works. Again, that's everyone. Either by the law, I've obeyed the law, I've done good enough, right? I mean, I can't do it perfectly, but I've done pretty well. You're condemned. Well, well, but my good works, I've been a good person. I've done these things. No, you're gonna stand before the judge of the earth. It's not gonna work. Self-righteousness will not work. Self-justification needs to die. So where is Jesus? Where is the good news in this text? They wanna go back to that passage where it talks about the way of peace they have not known and the story of Jesus when he's born. Luke chapter one and Luke chapter two, specifically in this verse, Luke one, verse 79, it says this, that Jesus is gonna be born to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death a guide to guide our feet into the way of peace. I'm totally depraved. I'm in darkness. Everything I do, my heart, my will, my body, my mind, my decision-making process is tainted by sin. It's totally depraved. I need Jesus to make the first move in my heart to say, believe in me or else I'm doomed. Therefore, I can't look at my own self and say, well, I've been redeemed. Look at what I did. I believed. I guess I'm better than those who don't believe. Wrong. I need him to make light out of my darkness and then to guide our feet into the way of peace, a way of living that is what Christ teaches. So again, just to re read this phrase. Paul is talking about people who think they will stand before the judge of the earth someday and think that they're okay because of their good works. Meaning, if you're a follower of Jesus, this isn't true of you. For those who have been, de been declared righteous, who have been called out of darkness and into marvelous light. Yes, the taint of sin is still there. It taints everything I do, but now I can do good works because it pleases God, because I have been declared righteous. Again, it's not in the text. That's next week. The good news is next week. Next week is all just party, right? This week, obituary. Doesn't work. This, though, book, again, has been written to a New Testament church, people who believe in the resurrected Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, those who have been declared righteous with his righteousness, those who were dead and been brought to life, those who were in darkness and have brought to light. And yet at the same time, this is a warning to those who are not in Christ. This is, this is a warning that, that, that your self-justification, your good works, your good deeds, your, your obedience to law won't work. It's not gonna cut it. And if you feel the spirit calling don't reject it. It's a warning because there is a new way of life, life itself that Christ brings. And so I wanted to rewrite this passage. I wanted to rewrite this text as those who are in Christ. This is, don't analyze this. It's, I'm sure there's blasphemy in here somewhere, okay? So, so anytime you start rewriting scripture, that's bad, okay? But I just wanted to be able to say, I wanted to end on a high note to say, if I'm in Christ, the indictments that Paul is making here just simply are not true any longer, not because of something I have done, but only because of what Christ has done. So let me, let me reread this. All who have faith are declared righteous in Christ. Yes, everyone who believes, 
How is it that a just God can allow anyone into heaven? Not because of anything they've done, but because they have been declared righteous, which Paul's gonna get into next week. All are now capable of understanding. And let me pause there again, and just defend myself. I probably should have put capable or to some capacity on every single thing because we don't always do this. We don't always do this perfectly. We can still choose the sin. We can still choose to go back to darkness. We can still choose to serve ourselves rather than Christ. But we're capable now. We have a new master. We wear a new name. I walk a new road. All are now capable of understanding. All have the capacity to find God. All have turned to Jesus. Together they have become the church, the bride of Christ, rather than the worthlessness described. We all can do good for God's glory. Yes, every one of us. Their voice is used for honor. They use their tongues to declare the truth. Sweet honey is under their lips. Their mouth is full of blessing and grace. Their feet are swift to help those in need. In their paths are support and mercy. And the way of peace through Christ has been made known to them. They fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. How can a just God allow anyone into his presence? The answer to Paul's question of that is, the answer is not by anything that we've done. I cannot, this is why, uh, well, I cannot do anything to convince you that you need Jesus. Can't do it. Jesus needs to convince you that you need Jesus. Your heart needs to be awakened to it. If it was simply a way of me just being a good orator, saying the right thing and, and getting you to believe, seal the deal, I wouldn't stop the sermon here. <laughs> I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. Did I say it right? Did I do this thing right? Did I? I need Jesus to open and illuminate your heart if this is not you, because it's not anything that we have done. It's not anything I can do. It's only through Christ who is the way of peace. I, uh, I forgot a point. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go back if I can. I, I was, I've got a little bit of time and I just wanna say this real quick. Uh, going back to those who seek, seek God, I just, I just thought of this. Are there people who seek after God? Are, do, can we say that all paths lead to Christ? Can we, or all paths lead to God, right? For Christians, it's through Jesus, but what about other people? Are they seeking God in their own way? I meant to talk about that and, I, and it, somehow I, I, I forgot. Well, what about that, right? Well, we go to Jesus who says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the light, no one comes to the Father but through me. Okay, great, but, but maybe all the other people can do it. There's also then uh, people who would say, and I'll get to it, hopefully that answer, just in the simple apologetic, and it doesn't answer all the questions, but I think it's helpful, this analogy that I'm about to give, is that, uh, that Christianity is divine child abuse, right? That, that, so if no one can go to heaven, the only way to go to heaven then is for God to send his son and to die. And now people can go to heaven. That's child abuse. That's divine child abuse. Here's the analogy that's been used for a long time. Well, since the invention of the railroad, <laughs> since the 1880s. Uh, I don't know when the train was invented. Um, is this, there's a, there's a dad. And for whatever reason, it's bring your son to work day. And, and uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a drawbridge right? And the drawbridge is up and there's a train full of people and it's speeding to this bridge and the bridge is up. And so he's got a button, a button that makes the bridge go down and he's got a button that makes the bridge go up, but the bridge is already up. So he's getting ready. You see the train coming or it's, it's wired in, uh, you know, horseback riders like trains coming. And so he, he goes and he hits the button 
He's about to hit the button that's going to close the gates, but he's like, oh, where's my son? Oh, he's in the gears of the stinking drawbridge. Now he's got a choice. He can either push the button and crush his son to allow everyone to pass over and live, or he can leave the gate up, save his son, and everybody else dies. Okay? That is, in a, in a way, a very simple understanding of what Christianity is, that God sacrifices his son so that we might have life. He didn't have to. He could have said, mm, no thanks, I'm gonna let Jesus live and therefore everybody else. That's not divine child abuse. That man wouldn't go to jail or prison. I don't think, maybe Locke can help me out with this or the other lawyers that are in here. Maybe, right? He, he's accountable, right? He's gonna suffer for the rest of his life, obviously. Right? But he's not, he's not he, you just saved thousands of people's lives. That's not child abuse. Here's what child abuse is. To say every road leads to God, but for some people it's through Christ. That's to say there was a third button and that third button would actually divert the train down a different pathway and everyone would be spared. But then the guy says, ah, I'm still gonna crush my son for some people. That's child abuse. You understand what I'm saying? Okay. That went back and came back, so I apologize. If you have questions about that, let me, feel free to talk to me about any of this. So, okay. How can anyone, how can, how can a just God allow anyone in his presence? Not by anything we've done, but only through Christ, who is the way of peace. And so what we get to do every week at Hope Lower Town is we get to partake of these elements, that we get to go to Christ, who is the way of peace, who changes our heart, changes our mind, incline to him. But now we don't have to do these good works. We don't have to do these laws to get in I now get to, that changes our perspective. And so we get to take these elements, the, the wafer, the bread that represents the body of Christ that was crushed for us. We get to partake of that. Say, so now, now we can see and get on the way of peace, that we get to drink the juice that represents his blood that was shed for us, the sacrifice that he willingly made, right? He wasn't a child stuck in some gears and the dad, no, they, he, he decided, I, I'm the one who sets down my life. I'm the one who gives my life for all but he doesn't stay dead. He rises from the dead after three days, defeats death and ascends to the right hand of the Father. So we're gonna partake of these elements. The worship team is gonna play a couple more songs, two more songs. Just feel free as you see fit. If you wanna grab these elements and pray, rejoice, whatever it may be, sing, join along in singing with the, with the worship team. Um, and all I would ask is that you're a follower of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, I would love for you to partake of these elements. If you're not a follower of Jesus, today you can't, you can be. Uh, it's not too late that uh, today you can say, yeah, I, I wanna follow that Jesus that I realize now that I can't do anything good enough. I can't justify myself. Self-justification has died. I need Jesus. Um, it's not too late. Today could be the day of repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for just for the time to be able to be here this morning as we look at a text that um, is heavy. Uh, that, that for all of us, every single person, whether a follower of your son, follower of Christ or not, that in some way we think that we're good. We think that we're better. And the truth is we're not. That it's only because of the good works of your son um, and the finished work of your son that allows us then to be able to approach you, but also then be able to do good works that are actually pleasing to you. That Isaiah teaches that before Christ, our good works are, are like filthy bloody, dirty rags. They're worthless. They're vile when we try to do something good that will earn us a position in your presence. We can't. We need Christ. And so God, we love you. We just pray now that you'd be honored and glorified through the singing of our songs and the, for the taking of these elements as we remember the finished work of your son on the cross as he was crushed for our iniquities.